Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Owen King is a novelist, a writer of short stories, novellas, a professor of creative writing at times, and full disclosure, one of my best friends here in the Hudson Valley. He's a great dude. I'm really excited for his new novel, The Curator, which is just out. I've read it. I highly recommend it. And I'm so glad to have him on Wheels Off. Um, I, I always approach interviews with close friends with some trepidation because I never know, you know, if the chemistry we have in real life will translate to the interview format. In this case, I think it does. I think the world of Owen and I think his um, particular sense of humor as well as his generosity and the thoughtfulness with which he approaches his craft, I think all of that comes through during the course of this conversation. I highly recommend that you go seek out some of his work. It's it's all over the place. Um, he describes a lot of it in in the course of this interview. So you'll hear sort of the scope of his output. Anyway, I'm really glad to welcome to Wheels Off the great Owen King. Welcome to Wheels Off, Owen King. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm good, man. This is so great. It's great can't to see your face. Can't believe it's finally happening. Yes. <laughs> and and for the for the record, Owen and I live in the same town and our friends IRL. And we even discussed doing this in the pre-pandemic fashion of sitting in the same room with lavaliers attached to our collars and looking at each other in real life. But no, we are relying on the technology to bring us together. Thank God. Owen, oh, for the edification of our listeners, where are you joining us from? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, you know, about what, three miles away from you in my office in upstate New York. And actually, you know, it's a, uh, it's a huge snowstorm today. The first real one we've had all winter long. So I would not have been able to get <clears throat> to your house very easily. So this all no. worked out. Our driveway is unplowed and it is, uh, it's, it's unpassable, impassable. Yeah. I don't even want to think about, I'm, you know, it's, I always, I I like to uh, consider myself quite a driver on snow because I'm from Maine originally, but this is the sort of weather where it just doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, and why would you? My daughter last night had a bunch of girls sleep over, so I woke up to a house full of girls who were going to go build multiple snow boys in our yard. Oh, very nice. That'll we'll be see. festive. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so congratulations on the imminent release of The Curator. It's fantastic. Thank you. I'm I'm incredibly excited and it's been a long 
Uh, it's been a long road. You know, I, I think that, um, since we're talking about the creative process, I, I, I would just say that one of the hardest things to wrap your mind around about writing a novel is that you kind of have to give it a sizable amount of time before you can know if it's going to go or not. Right. And if you, if you work on a book for six months or a year, it's possible it's not going to work out. And when you start, you kind of have to commit yourself to that. And, uh, so it's always scary and i've certainly had a couple couple projects that i've worked on for good amounts of time that collapsed under the weight of the the work um under what i was trying to do and um in this case this one just flowed pretty good all the way through and here i am you know a few years later and it's a lot. I mean, it's it seems like the architecture of this book and the number of characters. And I know the the word world building feels kind of gross and overused to me, but I do feel like there was a lot of world for you to build in this. Um, it, did it feel like it was this massive yeah, structure? I, it, well, I, it's based on a short story I wrote way back in 2014, and the short story had the bones of the story. And so when i turned that into a novel it's a the there's a ton going on but the main premise is that there's this uh it's set in a victorian era city that's a little bit like london it's a little bit like new york it's a little bit like vienna it's a it's a combination of different cities that's never named and it feels like it's about mm, 1890 1900 something like that and there's been a revolution in in this country and in this capital city and the main character whose name is dora she's a domestic servant and she's uh in a relationship with a young revolutionary and she for reasons that aren't immediately clear she has this idea that she wants to take over the uh curatorship of this uh particular building on this very quiet street of very obscure museums and uh she ends up not getting because uh the revolutionaries are insistent on taking everything over right because everybody's been kicked out all the elites have been kicked out and so she's this domestic servant who wants to get this job and she doesn't get exactly the place that she wants she gets one next door um and as it turns out the street isn't what it seems to be and she's not what she seems to be uh and the revolution isn't what it seems to be. So that's where it, where it takes off from. And so there's a lot of uh, stuff. It, it's a little bit of a uh, it's a little bit of a lift, certainly for the first part of the book, uh, setting up the world, which is this, you know, city with a lot of different uh, layers to it. There's, you know, a very impoverished area and there's a very wealthy area and there's a government area and there's the place where the museums are and there's the river and the all the all the different parts of the city and the bridges and things uh and so i had to set all that up and it was a lot of research but it was like uh it was a joy to do because i i just felt like um i knew the world and and when i when i wrote the story which has just got a little bit of of the mostly just the museum part of it this museum that dora takes over uh i still knew all the stuff in the background i just hadn't written it you know i'd thought about it all and uh and then once you once you get into 
to building up the world and the story. There's a lot of improvisation that takes place and things just sort of uh, layer on each other. And it's, I think it's just having, um, I just caught the spirit of the thing in the story and I was able to replicate that and it made it, it made it go easy. And that's kind of what you're always looking for with a project. And I'm sure, I'm sure you know this, you would say the same thing. Um, it, it's just, you, you find kind of the, the, the way it wants to sound. And once you, once you do that, the ideas part of it isn't so hard. It's the like getting the right feel um, for how the sentences are supposed to sound and how the people are supposed to think and just the whole vibe of it. That's the part that's really, really difficult. And, you know, you're doing it every time you start a creative project, you got to do that all over again, right? Unless it's a sequel. And then then you already know. Well, you have a thing that you just said in there that that is so crucial, I feel like, to the way it seems like it works for most people I talk to. You said the way it wants to sound like it's it's as if you are. I mean, we talk about being stewards of the work or whatever, which sounds pompous. But in a way, it's it's really like this thing wants you to make it and it wants you to make it in this specific way. You're You're paying attention as you write right to this thing. Is that what it feels like for you? Yeah. And I, I mean, some of it is, some of it is conscious. Um, at least at the beginning, you know, I, I knew that this particular book was, I always try to do something different with every book. I'm kind of obsessed with that idea. You know, I'm really restless about it. I don't want to repeat myself. And I knew this book, I wanted it to have a little bit of the sound, a little bit of the feel of, of, of actual Victorian novels. Right. And so I wanted it to sound a little bit it, it's at least um, partially inspired by Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. So I wanted mm-hmm. it to sound a little bit like him uh, and a little bit like Trollope and a little bit like Elizabeth Gaskell and a lot of other writers of the time. Um, but of course, you can't. I mean, I'm also not trying to imitate them. I'm trying to catch a little bit of that flavor of the the kind of kind of. Uh, how do I want to say this? The the kind of way that they they wind it around in their sentences, this kind of stem winding quality. And I can't do it. I can't and would not want to do it as much as they are doing in yeah. those big, long paragraphs. Those, and and so I'm just trying to do a little bit of that and catch the flavor in the language uh, that matches up with the world as we recognize it as readers and as viewers of, you know, television shows that are set in that area and that time and place. So that's what I was trying to do. Uh, And then once I got into the spirit of it, which wasn't too hard because that's, I'm just into that stuff. um, It, it, it came. Yeah. That, that, that whole carefully stacked clause upon clause upon clause kind of style of writing. I don't know how readable that would be. There's a, a New Yorker, I think article that came out yesterday where they're talking about the dearth of English majors and one one English professor, Harvard or Arizona State University, said, um, "Trying to teach Middlemarch right now is like trying to land a Learjet on a you know farm road." So I just just it's well, I I think the stuff is actually super readable. I think it's just a matter of making yourself quiet and like do you know like when I start when I start a Dickens book right. Actually, maybe not great expectations, which is just like a freight train, right? Right from the beginning. It's just like this guy is 
you know, his parents are dead and he's like looking at their gravestones. And then this convict comes out of the mist. And I mean, it's just like, boom, you're zooming. Um, but with some, some of the other Victorian novels, yeah, it does take, you know, 10, 20 pages, but then you start thinking in that rhythm, you know, and, and to me, it's just like, um, you, you get into the, you get into the mood of it, but it would be, um, so willful to try to like ape that. Um, and so, um, it would just, it, it, to ape that, to try to, to try to, um, uh, mimic that would not be, it would not be alive the way that it is. I hope, uh, when I sort of mix it with, um, the, my own contemporary point of view and just sort of, uh, catch a little bit of it. That's what I, that's my feeling, but maybe that's an excuse because I'm not quite that linguistically adept, you know, no. to be able to go roaring through it. It's amazing to read those books and, and to think about that. They just, you know, wrote it down. You know, I don't even, ha- I never handwrite just about. <laughs> um, well, I think you succeeded. It really feels like your voice and there's a, there's a level of snarkiness. There's a level of sweetness. There's, um, you know, multiple laugh out loud moments in the book that felt like they were straight from your, I don't know your your soul, the the true Owen. Okay, but so um, thank you. Uh, before I I haven't even got to my first proper uh, traditionally my first question, yeah, and I always feel I always feel a little bit bad asking this of someone who has just released something they spent years working on and they're in the process of re- you know giving it to the world. But what creative project are you working on now, and how does it light you up? I am writing, uh, I'm collaborating on a comic book with my friend, Jesse Kellerman, uh, for image comics called self-help. And again, it's a totally different, I was trying to do something different if I can. And this one is a, it's like a California noir and, uh, we've got the first five issues done and first two issues have been drawn and we're just, uh, we're into the second part of it now and just cruising along. And I love collaborating. I find that uh so inspiring right somebody else that you that you you dig their point of view and and you get inspired by the things they come up with and you riff on them and and hopefully they get inspired by the things that you uh come up with and they riff on those and it just it becomes kind of a cool soup and it's uh it's rejuvenating um it seems like you thrive on that i know you did some time teaching is is, did that feel like it was collaborating with younger people to help usher them into the world or did that feel like a beating i think it's absolutely collaborative (laughs) and i i think that the the uh i don't know uh i don't know if i'm ushering them but i i think that one of the great things about teaching is that when you discuss a story with a group it doesn't it could be a group of any people really they're always going to find things that you didn't find and i i love that i love talking to people about a short story or a novel um and just seeing how they take it and where they where they go with the material and i always learn something and it always gets me to turn it around and think of it from 
try to think of it from the way that they do try to try to think of it from that point of view and um <clears throat> i get a huge kick out of that um did you have a readers group do you have people that like when you were working on the curator as it was going through its um stages and drafts do you have people that read it for you well oh. you uh, you know my wife kelly yes. um she's a novelist kelly braffitt and she's great. Uh, kelly always reads my my stuff and uh, i'm trying to think who else um read the book in its nascent form um there's a there's a songwriter two songwriters you know uh elizabeth nelson and timothy mm -hmm. bracy they're in the paranoid style tim and beth do a lot of reading of my stuff i'm not sure they I, I think they maybe read the first complete draft i'm not sure they read it along the way um yeah when i'm in midstream it's it's mostly just kelly sometimes i'll uh i have a couple other people that i'll i'll turn to i try to keep it a small group because i don't want to i don't want to hear from like 20 people about 100 pages of a draft yeah but i like to hear from four or five and then it's if you hear the same thing and i think this is a great uh rule to keep in mind when you're in a workshop it can be really uncomfortable the first time you're in a you're in a writing workshop and you hear a bunch of people say the stuff that they don't like about your piece or that that didn't work for them right and what i try to keep in mind is one nobody is trying to like kill your buzz nobody does that nobody or almost never i mean i guess every once in a while there might be some demonic force that's like trying to <laughs> make you feel bad but i i mean it's highly it'd be highly unusual people want to help you you know and and then when you hear four out of the five people saying the same thing and they're all saying well i don't I don't believe this character or you got to convince me that this thing is really happening or whatever. You got to listen to them. You got to, you got to try to do that. Um, and once you set your mind to that, you'll often be very pleasantly surprised about how much you can improve your work. And that's what I'm looking for from those, those early readers. And when I have a, I mean, I usually have a, pretty good idea of what's working but sometimes i'm surprised and something's not working as well as i thought it was and then i gotta listen it's like the old elvis castello quote about that they all sound like hits to me right like <laughs> i don't know what songs that from it, it's it's just he was taught there was an interviewer that asked him you know so many of your contemporaries have had successful you know careers and songs that have blown up at the radio and and you've never had anything break through you know how does that make you feel and he's like i don't know they all sound like hits to me so it's maybe we're not the best judges of our own work like i i love what i, I think do. that's right yeah i think that's right and i and i i in mean both, you, you have both some, directions you bring ideas of your own into your creative work but you got it you you have to listen to other people or otherwise it's totally just for you and i and i do and i'm sure i i would be curious to hear you say i'm be very surprised if you don't agree with me i mean i write to entertain myself first. yes yes right and you and i'm sure you when you're writing a song or a story or whatever you're you want to amuse the shit out of that rhett miller guy and delight yeah. him first you know but then if you're going to potentially share it with the world you got to think about other people 
Yeah. And I think anything else would be cynical and would probably backfire. And that's what comes up a lot is the, yes. the cal- calculated efforts backfire. Um, I wonder you, I you, right. you've told me about um, you had an editor you worked with who wound up helping you a lot. How does that relationship work? Uh, well, I don't know if I've ever had the same editor twice now that I think about it, but the, the editor on this book is a lovely man named Joe Monty, uh, who, uh, was edited a number of, you know, wonderful books uh, at Saga Press, and he really, really got what I was going for, uh, and sort of understood the 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 you know sweeping yarn quality, and that the book is supposed to be kind of a bath, you know, that you sink into, and then it, and then it really takes off in the mill, um, hopefully, uh, and Joe, what was and I think this is what all good editors do is they try to think of the they adapt every time to what the writer is going for. And so Joe understood what I was going for. And he pointed out that it was really crucial that this one particular uh, plot point in the middle of the book had to be really clear or a lot of readers might feel like not enough was explained. And uh, from my perspective, everything was explained because I wrote it. So it's totally clear to me. Uh, <laughs> but when I thought about what he was saying and, and the specifics he was pointing out, I thought to myself, gosh, he's really right. This isn't it's not it's not really credible what this guy is doing. And until I explain a little bit more about his point of view, this character. And I'm being very vague here because I don't want to spoil anything. And it's, yeah. it's also kind of difficult. It's way in the middle of the book. But um, and so that was hugely instrumental. And and Joe and all editors do stuff where they they go through the text and they say it's, you know, sometimes it's specific in a copy editing kind of way where they'll say, you know, for instance, with my book, is this the kind of word somebody would use in this suggested time period that kind of thing or um you know this is more than we need and that that kind of thing and uh i just i've never had a publishing experience where the editor didn't hugely improve the book like the unsung heroes right oh yeah and i and i it's not just the editor it's the copy editor i mean the copy editor doesn't just and they don't just point out the mistakes in your language they try to find the continuity errors and um and things like that and and f- make sure that the timeline works and all those things and you got to listen to those people it it's it all happens behind the scenes and um it makes a it makes a big difference owe them a lot so growing up in maine do you remember always wanting to be a writer was uh, were were books the end goal? Was there an epiphany moment for you when you thought I could do this? Uh, yeah, I've told this story before. It wasn't. My parents are both novelists, and so on the one hand, I I had a big advantage that a lot of other people don't have, which is it seemed like a viable career. You know, my parents did it, so I was like, oh, well, this is something people do, and so in that way, it seemed much easier than it actually is. Um, but I wasn't, uh, as a young person, I liked, I loved books. I always, as long as I can remember, I've always had a book I'm reading. And, um, 
and I enjoyed writing as a, you know, adolescent and a teenager, but I was also a little bit daunted by the amount of time that my parents spent alone in their offices. You know, I, one of the memories of my, my parents are very present in my life, but I also remember a lot of times like those closed doors and you just hear the typewriter keys. Cause I'm old, you know, I remember typewriter keys just ringing out, you know, like, you know, like uh, anti-aircraft fire, you know, behind the doors and they would do it for hours on end. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking like, it's fun to sit down and write a story for like a half an hour, but doing it for like three or four hours, this seems very lonely. And, uh, and it also seems like, like the physical determination of like, you got to stay in the seat. This is hard. Um, and so that was the thing that intimidated me, but as I got a little bit older and I got into college and I, I, I got more invested in stories and fiction and what I'd always, what had always been entertaining to me became sort of an obsession. And I got, it became more important to stay in that seat and do the work. And, um, I just decided it was what I wanted to do somewhere in that, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20 range. And, uh, but I would also say, you know, it took even when I was writing things that I think were, you know, had promise in my mid twenties, it was still a concentrated decision to put those hours in, you know, and sometimes I would get often, I would get going and it would be, it would be a rich experience. Um, but there was still plenty of, you got to sit down and work right now and you got to stay there. And it wasn't until my late, you know, the latter part of my twenties onward that it became second nature where it's like, like, this is something I love to do every time, just about like, I look forward to it. Man. Um, I wonder about the idea that you are constantly trying to, uh, do something different. And, but because that, that resonates with me, it's something that, that I'm drawn to, but I want, you know, I've wondered if that approach to, um, our creative lives costs us, should we be, um, should we be targeting our brand? Should we be figuring out a way to create something that's marketable and streamlined? I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm setting you up because obviously the answer can't be yeah. yes. I don't, I, I, well, I don't think that it's possible, really. I mean, you can either do it. Well, I think of somebody like Elmore Leonard, who we both love, you know, he locked into this thing and every every book is different, but they're all Dutch Leonard, right? At the back, it's all Elmore. But think about the the lives he had where it was way more pulp and then it was way more slick crime. And then it was a whole world of Westerns that he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a certain sensibility at the back of it. And yes. I think that's probably true of, of all my work and all your work. Like there's a yeah. certain, a certain point of view at the back of it, but like his books tend to, uh, tend to sound a little yeah. Elmore-ish across genre. And, um, it's such a charismatic voice that it captured the hearts of so many readers like us. Um, so I, I just think you you do what you can do. I I don't think there's anything wrong with considering commercial possibilities or marketing or things like that, but you you can't 
it would be hard to define your work in that way. Uh, maybe that's not the right word, but you can only do what you what you do. I I just don't know how. Um, I rewrite really consciously, right? But I don't write. I don't draft consciously very a little bit, but not much. So that's the part where you would be like the basic book or the basic screenplay or whatever. That's where you would be. You'd have to set it up as something that you were like, oh, people are going to love this. It's I don't know. You you just write the thing that you're inspired to write and hope that, you know, once you rewrite it and make it as good as it can be, that it will find an audience. Um, I don't know. It, it, it seems a little self-defeating to be like, this is the one that's going to be big because <laughs> you could just almost only be disappointed right um yeah. and so it's more important to you know uh write the version of it that you love definitely rewrite it with thinking about an audience a little bit um and hoping that that this the best version of your vision is gonna you know appeal to people and it, i guess it's possible you could write something where you're like wow i did exactly what i wanted to but i don't think there's an audience for this so i'm not even going to try i'm just going to put it here and i made this perfect thing that pleases me i guess that would be okay right um but uh but yeah i i, I don't i don't know if um thinking too much about the audience before the you know the egg is hatched is a good idea yeah so i i as someone who knows you it's easy to think that you because because you have a really like uh, positive, generally kind of a funny, lighthearted approach to life. It, it would be easy to think that you that your inner life is pretty smooth and that you never hit any serious bumps internally. But I do know that you deal wrestle with stuff, as do all of us. And I wonder for you, when you do come up against those internally generated obstacles, the negative voices in your head, I wonder how, how do you deal with that? Well, I try to expose myself to as few of them as possible. You know, I, I try to, um, you know, I do read reviews at times because I want to understand how things are being taken and i don't know i don't because i do care what 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 audiences think and what readers think but i try not to um put myself in a position where i'm like reading a bunch of things or i, I don't want to hear a ton of negative voices right because that could be that could be stifling um when i'm when i'm actually in the middle of writing a project and it's not going well I am kind of a quick quitter. <laughs> I, it's like if it doesn't, if it's if it's not clicking, it's like, well, maybe I should start over or maybe I should try another thing. Um, but what I what I don't think works for me is relentlessly pounding my head against something that doesn't work. And so stepping aside, stepping away trying something else if it's if it's a really important story or a really important character probably you'll come back right um so that's one thing uh and i also think that it's just <clears throat> it's so important and this is not even a creative thing but just have people in your life who are like you know what you can do this you're good uh it's okay to fail uh 
that help you keep those things in mind that we know are true. Uh, that's really important. But um, when you write books or stories or poems or songs, I mean, the work does happen by yourself. Um, so you're alone a lot and uh, it's you are going to have some negative thoughts, but it's it's important to not be alone all the time. Right. It's yeah. like there's the writing and there's the life and it's you got to when the writing is not going good, you got to be able to fall back on the life part. That's true. Um, it, it helps to live in this beautiful place where we live. It does. It does. I mean, although it doesn't seem that important when you step outside, right? And I know we are pretty isolated. We We're are both... pretty we are pretty isolated, but uh, luckily Zoom is here for us. Yeah, or we could drive to our friends' houses and play board games, or play board games. Right? <laughs> I had a great idea for a board game, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna reveal it now. Don't. It's still because... in the. It's still, I'm still in the uh, in the building stage. When you mentioned the uh, um, your love of collaboration, it reminded me that last week I had an idea for you and I. Another collaboration oh, good, idea. Good. All right, more to good, come on that. that. Yes. <laughs> we'll have okay. Good. We'll make, good, somebody good. will have to interview us together. I wonder if you could try and distill some of what you've figured out over all these years, all these years, recently having had your birthday. Um, if you were to encounter a 21-year-old Owen King, uh, what advice would you, but in today's world, with all the trappings of 2023, yeah. what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I think that... Uh, this is a i love this question and i love listening to what people say it's always so smart um so i've got a lot to live up to but i'm gonna try and i think that before i published my first book i had an idea that that getting that book into print was going to fix everything for me and what I mean by that is that I was going to be, um, I, I would, my job would be established and everything in my life would make sense. And I'd be good to go for like the next however many years that I lived. And I remember I, I told, told the story on my newsletter recently, uh, my wife Kelly reminded me some details that I forgot, which are funny, which is we were living in Maine. This was way back in 2004, 2005. And I get this call from FedEx that the the guy is stuck. And I knew he had my galleys in my first book. We're all in this together. And I was like out the door instantaneously in the truck to drive down this snow uh jammed road and i got there to this guy because i was like i'm getting these books because this is the moment for me right and i got the books i got the box of books from the guy and we <laughs> this is the part i forgot we actually like took out our floor mats to help him back up over the thing we did get him out uh and i remember kelly i was definitely like this is crazy that we're out in this snowstorm um but it was we had to we had to rescue the fedex person yeah and uh, but then I got the box home and I opened it up and there was this moment where I was like, oh my God, I did it. And I'm so happy. I worked so hard on this book. And, and then I was like, oh shit, I am still me. Like there is no transformation has taken place. 
And it seems really stupid in retrospect that I thought that I would be um, just fixed by this book, but I, uh, and by publishing it, and it, it took me a long time to probably a few years, two or three years after that, I was pretty stumped as a writer in a lot of ways. And I think it had to do with this feeling of, you know, I'm still a person that struggles with all kinds of things. And, and uh, every, I still have relationships in my life that I need to um, be attentive to. And I, I need to figure these things out about myself. I'm speaking very vaguely, but because it was so global. And, and I think that what, what I, what it took a little while to come to terms with was this idea that like, I love writing stories and books and it's a refuge and a joy to me, but it is also just one part of my life. And not actually the most important part of my life. It's crucial, but uh, I am never going to be able to stop working on all the relationships in my life and on keeping my head up and being conscious in the world. And that that was going to be work forever. And that writing wasn't going to fix it. And, uh, and then once I came to terms with that, um, you know, I still have good and bad days, but it, it really made the writing actually, it was great for my writing because it freed it. Cause I was like, this isn't, I'm not trying to fix my life with my work. I'm just like trying to have a blast and entertain myself and hopefully entertain other people. And, uh, and so what I would I would love to say to that younger version of myself was, you know, don't let yourself believe that this is that all the weight is on this. You know, it's not good for the work and it's not good for your sense of self um, and your, you know, your ability to live in the world and be a good person to other people and be a be an attentive and thoughtful and conscious person. Um, so that's the thing I would say. I mean, but it's, I mean, you have that song 19. I love that line because 19 is not the age of reason, you know, and you know, the your late teens and early twenties are also not the age of reason. Um, so I, I'm not sure it would have taken, but that's the advice I wish that I could have had and absorbed. It makes me think of the, there's a name for it that I can't remember right now. The phenomenon that happens where people wait their whole lives to go to Paris and then they get to Paris <laughs> and they're sort of disappointed by it's just a city. It's not it's not the you know, the, it doesn't change their lives looking at the Eiffel Tower. Have you heard of this? Yeah, I, th I think that's that's some of it is there's just you build something up. It's probably true of a lot of things. You build something up so big. And it can never live up to it. Um, Relationships probably suffer from this yeah. too. That you think whenever I'm coupled with a partner, this will make everything better. And then you're all, then you're coupled with a partner, but you're still the same you. That's right. That's right. It's funny. I um, I uh, I recently read uh, reread. Well, it wasn't recent. It was like last summer. But I reread High Fidelity. I know you had Nick Hornby on the show, and I love him so much. 
Uh, and I love his writing and I, and, and I reread the book and it, I, a lot of times books that I really love, I'm scared to read it again. I loved the book and I loved the book <laughs> rereading it. And it was like, this thing just is lightning. And, um, but there was one tiny moment at the end of the book <clears throat> that made me think that the relationship between these two people is not going to work out. And I'm so curious if he ever writes a book, a sequel to the book. And I kind of think he might someday. Um, what's the name of the main, the, the main character in the book? Is it, uh, I'm not going to remember, but I can't remember either, but the, that his, this, this woman that he's in love with, and he's been, he's not treated her well in this book. And he sort of, he, he comes to terms with that. He, he loves her desperately, but he has to change. He can't, um, he has to give more to her in a that's a very short version of it um and he has to be more present for her but then she says something to him where she says my job is to fix you <laughs> something that's very close to that <clears throat> and i thought to myself oh she's uh -oh. going to realize she doesn't want to do that eventually you know yeah. some more time is going to go by um and uh and I think that that's part of creative, uh, a creative job is knowing that you have to leave it in the studio or in your office and no one's going to fix you. Right. Or, no, or, and no one can. Yeah. Or if, if anyone could, it's just you and the only fixing, well, sorry, now I'm, now I'm answering questions instead of asking them, but, but yeah, yeah but well, but like, but it's true. Right. I mean, and, and, when I'm in my relationship and, and you're in your relationship, it's, you know, the struggles that I'm having with my creative life. I mean, I want Kelly to be supportive of me and I want her to help me figure things out, <laughs> but she can't fix me. You know, I mean, I probably can't fix me, but I'm the one who has to try to. Yeah. It's my job. And, um, the, and the fix probably involves something that looks more like making peace with the flaws. Acceptance. Yeah, exactly. Well, oh, and I just, I think the world of you and, and I'm so excited for this book to see the light of day. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to get to be your friend and I'm, uh, I hope I always get to be an early reader of this stuff. And, uh, and I look forward to whatever projects that you and I someday collaborate on. And I'm really glad that you joined me for wheels off. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Rhett. Love you, man. And uh, it was a pleasure. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Osiris. Hello out there. Yes, we're out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. 
Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!